I'm going to speak this evening a little bit about the subjects, the topics for this week's retreat, but I want to lay down some foundations this evening. And I want to start with a story that might be familiar to some of you. It's a very famous story in India, and there are quite a number of versions of it. It's about a traveller who comes across a mendicant or a guru, basically a sadhu, who's sitting there with one of these silver platters in front of him, piled with chilies, and he's sitting there and biting and going, and throwing it away, and biting another one and wincing and throwing it away. And the traveller says to him, he says, what are you trying to do? He said, I'm trying to find the sweet one. And in a way, I think this is a wonderful story which illustrates, in a sense, a lot of our position in life. You know, we're still trying to find a sweet chilli. So we keep biting into things again and again and again and causing ourselves pain. And this is where I want to start this evening because it's really about... In a sense, how do we come to even explore something like meditation, the Buddha Dhamma? How do we come to meditation centers in general? And it's really perhaps with a growing disillusionment that there isn't any sweet chilies around, that they're all pretty hot and fiery and they're going to cause you pain, particularly if you eat too many of them. And in a way, that's the Buddha's starting point And this is what I want to explore with you just a little bit this evening. And none of this is meant to be taken as anything to be believed in. Um, The Buddha did not offer a belief system. You don't become believers. There are some aspects of Buddhism where it is the case. But in early Buddhism, the Buddhism really which I'm trying to teach from, it's not a belief system. The Buddha really is trying to get us into quiet, inquire into our existential situation, how we find ourselves, how we cause ourselves problems, how we continue to search for that sweet chili and thus cause ourselves pain without really directing our attention to that which can really bring us happiness, that which can really bring us peace and contentment. I have a great problem with the word happiness, but I'll continue to use it because it's one word that a lot of people will relate to. But however we interpret that word, you know, this is often, often what we're searching for in life. Perhaps it's peace, perhaps it's contentment, perhaps it's security, um, perhaps it's that happiness, however you interpret it. But this is what we're looking for, and the problem is, from this perspective, that we are looking for it in the wrong place. We're looking for it in the sweet chili. You know, we overvalue things which can never give us what we're looking for, can never deliver to us that which we want. Particularly in the Western world, we're looking for it perhaps all the time and have done for centuries now through the materialism that this Western world offers us. And this Western world really is becoming the world. It's not just the Western world any longer. It's the world. Asia, every time I go back to Asia, I see it changing and changing much more into the way that we are, with the kind of values um, that we, in a sense, propagate as being world values. And one of those is materialism. And so perhaps we search for our security, our happiness in, in that materialism, which is all too prevalent in this world. 
And what we find, of course, is, as I suggested last night a little bit, that it doesn't produce any of the peace and the contentment that we search for. So our, in a sense, valuation is misguided. We look for it in that which cannot produce it. We find very wealthy people in the West who get depressed. We find those who are fairly affluent who get depressed, and we find those on the lower strata of society who are also getting depressed. And a lot of this is to do with not satisfying the, you know, it doesn't satisfy that which is being searched for through that route. Now, the Buddha, in a sense, is always starting from a diagnostic point of view. He's always trying to tell us what our problem is in order for us to help to see how we can overcome our problems. That is the Buddha's message, if there is a message, that we engage in an inquiry to find out the causes of our malaise. How, in a sense, that it's not that malaise is caused from external things, but in a sense that's internally generated. I said something very briefly and fleetingly last night, you might be all too tired to hear it. And one of the things I said really is in a sense that Buddhism is an ism, which I don't again very much like. But this path is very much a psychological path. It's really understanding the psychological wellsprings of our liberation or of our entrapment. And really beginning to understand the nature of that entrapment. In order to free ourselves from that entrapment, we need to understand it. We can't just make a leap out into the dark, into an unknown, because we will probably find that we're still tethered in some way. We're still bound to patterns of behavior, forms of thought, which go unexamined and unacknowledged. In the West, we often have a word for this. We call this the unconscious. Buddhist traditions never speak in terms of an unconscious as such, but they talk about certainly that which is not known to us, that which isn't automatically seen. So some tremendous amount of time, and it's not meant to be depressive at all, is spent actually beginning to look at the problem in order to overcome the problem. So you spend time palpating that problem and really seeing it in all its depths in order to make the move psychologically into a better space to be, into a much freer space to be. One of the defining features of often a lot of our behaviour, and perhaps in this search for the, you know, the sweet chilli or whatever you want to call it, whatever for the material object that's going to make you happy, is that it is endless. That it has no end. It has no terminal point that we're going to arrive at where satisfaction is automatically guaranteed. The Buddha actually defined the causes of our malaise, and I'll speak a bit more about this in a few minutes. He defined the causes of our malaise as being this endless search for satisfaction in things that can never deliver it, in objects that never can deliver it, in money which can never deliver it, even the search for others you know, to give me happiness. I mean, I always think that's the death knell of any relationship. You know, make me happy. You know, because once that demand is made, it's not going to materialize. 
And so the Buddha characterized this search as an endless search. It's actually in the original languages, the word tanha means an unquenchable thirst. A thirst literally by its very nature that can never be quenched by anything external. Yet, I'm sure we still, most of us, and I know I do, I'll put my hand up immediately and say, sometimes have this mythology that there is a something or a someone, or no matter how small or no matter how great, that is going to provide me with satisfaction and happiness. And if only I had it, I would be happy. And it is a mythology. And it's one that we need to constantly examine in our lives to begin to understand the wellsprings of a lot of our behavior. Because a lot of our behavior is driven, if not all of our behavior, is driven by that search for a something or a someone to provide conditions of security, peace, contentment, happiness. Whichever word really attracts you as being the one that you think is most apposite to your condition. And really what the Buddhist path is about initially is seeing that that is a mythology. To see actually that that search is always an externalization. Always a search for external conditions which are going to provide me with something. Now I just want to read you a very small quote. Some of again will know perhaps this quote. Those have been around Buddhism or the fringes of it for a while. This is what the Buddha says in in one of his short texts. He says, The end of the world can never be reached by walking. However, However, without having reached the end of the world, there is no release from suffering. I declare that it is in this fathom long carcass, with its perceptions, with its thoughts, that there is a world. There is the origin of the world, there is the cessation of the world, and the path leading to the cessation of the world. What the Buddha means by the term world here is not bringing extinction. He's talking about bringing an end to a world which is characterized by restlessness, by anxiety, by depression, by all the myriad, I could give you a long litany of terms here, which characterize a lot of the human malaise, a lot of the human condition in its most negative. Now, this is not to deny that there are joys and that there are pleasures in life. It's nothing about that. But that there is, even in those pleasures and even in those joys, something which taints them for us. Something that we bring to our experience, even of our pleasures and our joys, what I would perhaps term an expectation within them, that we bring to them, which in a way taints them and paints them in a picture which is unrealistic. And one of the things that we bring to that, to these joys, these hopes, everything, particular joys and the pleasures, is that they will last, that they are somehow permanent. And one of the things that the Buddha is talking about here is the lack of permanence. 
because permanence is unsettling, by its, impermanence is unsettling by its very nature, we, to use a loose translation of the term, we suffer. We suffer dissatisfaction. Life, in a way, seems unsatisfactory because very little, if anything, has any degree of stability. Some things are changing faster than others. The oldest human structures are decaying. The Himalaya continue to rise. Everything is changing. And when we look around the human world, there's very little that gets past the age of 100. Very, very little. I was struck a few years ago. They had a series on television. I don't know if any of you saw it. A series on television which is actually showing old cinema film from the 1890s, early 1900s. And you realise when you're looking at this really old cinema film, it's some of the oldest film of working life in England, that you're looking at ghosts. Nobody there is around anymore. No face, no moving figure, and you see people doing ordinary things, engaging in ordinary enjoyments, all the things that we do, except 100 years back or so, and yet none of it is there anymore. It has all changed. Every bit of it has changed. There is no security. There is no permanence to all that. So we're searching for something permanent. We're externalizing it. We're searching for a stability, perhaps, that isn't there. And it is through that, of course, that we generate from ourselves much of the unsatisfactoriness, because the one, perhaps, word that I'll say a few things about this evening is the word dharma. The word dharma, as it's spoken in Sanskrit, has many, many meanings. Um, But one of the meanings is the way things are. And one of the truths about the way things are is that everything is impermanent. Nothing remains the same. Everything changes. To get a good glimpse of that, you've only got to close your eyes. And in doing so, you will see the changing nature of the mind. It's rattling around. Thoughts are arising and passing away at a very, very rapid rate. There is very little, if anything, which is stable in that continuum. So, we're in a position where we're trying to create a stability which is chimerical, it's mythological, it doesn't exist. And, of course, the very way that things are, the very nature of the way that they are, the dharma, if you like, is that they're changing. Is there any wonder that we have pain? Now, one of the things that the Buddha is speaking about is waking up to this truth, beginning to wake up to it. Waking up, um, and I've said this so many times in this room, and it's something I really don't feel ashamed about saying anymore. Um, I used to apologise, and some of you might have heard me say this before. I really don't apologise for saying this again, because I think this is a wonderful challenge to us. Um, You've often heard it spoken about that the Buddha attained enlightenment. Most of you heard that? at some point, read it somewhere. He didn't. (laughs) The Buddha did not become enlightened. He became awakened. The anglicised word, the English word enlightened really does not apply to the Buddha's experience at all. 
And in fact, when we use the proper term, the proper translation of the term, which I won't get into what it is at this moment in time, but when we use the proper translation of awakened, it actually offers us a direct challenge. Because if the Buddha is awakened, what position are we in? Well, I would say that we're mostly asleep. And so actually that grasping after stability, that grasping after impermanence, that grasping after the sweet chili or looking for it, is all done in a rather somnambulistic state, in a state of sleepwalking. Um, Sleepwalkers cause themselves a lot of damage at times. They keep bumping into things and causing themselves bruises. It's a bit like... You know, you're walking around, you keep bumping into the same lamppost, and you wonder why you're covered in bruises all over. And in a way, that's a good metaphor for life, because if we stumble through life, sleepwalking, even perhaps dreaming, fantasizing about the way things are, then we keep coming up against the hard realities of the way things are. Occasionally, just occasionally, and I joke about this, just occasionally we open an eye and look around and then fall back asleep again. We don't really sustain the awareness very long. The Buddha is speaking about as discovering the truths about this in the examination of our psychological conditions, what we bring to the world the fantasies that we bring and you've heard me speak so far just this evening just about one major fantasy the fantasy of permanence the fantasy or perhaps even the second one the fantasy of satisfaction through something external creating the causes and conditions for us to be happy now in many ways the Buddha is an incredible realist and the Buddhist tradition has been very realistic, particularly in its inception, in its beginning, in understanding that the wellsprings and the causes of our malaise, as well as the wellsprings and causes, as I've said before, of the opposite of our liberation from these problems, is to be found in the nature of our minds. Most of you, particularly those with acquaintance with Buddhist traditions, but having read the books, will have come across Um, something called the first noble truth, the ennobling truth of suffering or the noble truth of suffering. Suffering. Well, let me get it clear. There's nothing noble about suffering for a start off. There's really, really nothing noble in it. What the phrase really should mean is the ennobling truth of suffering. One becomes ennobled by investigating this particular facet and its cause. So this becomes a noble path, a path of investigating. One becomes ennobled, enriched by investigating the causes of the pain. Suffering is probably an over-evaluation. If I said to you, you're all suffering in a pretty gloomy voice, you're all suffering, you'd probably say, no, I'm not. Yeah, it's been a long day. Um, you know, my knees hurt. Um, I'm rather bored with what you're saying and things like that. But you know, suffering is probably over-egging it a bit. Really, what the word means, and this word is a word I really feel for any of those who have been practicing for a while and those who 
want to go down this path really should naturalize into their language. It's this word, Sanskrit Pali word, which is dukkha. Because in that little word is covered all of the things I've spoken about so far. All of our distress, our dissatisfaction, our sufferings and our tragedies as well, and the way that we react to the tragedies within our lives. All of it is covered in that word. That word means a number of things. What it primarily means is something which is very unpleasant, and we experience it as unpleasant. I spoke a little bit about this last night and mentioned it, that the, the warp and woof of a lot of the background of our life is just a friction that's there. That things are not going quite right. No matter how, you know, even if you get the thing that you really wanted or are with the person you really wanted to be or whatever it is you set yourself out as the ideal and perhaps told yourself the mythology I'm going to be happy, is still not quite right. There's something there that's not quite right. You know, it might be just a kind of querulous tremor at the background of your mind that everything isn't okay. But it runs, let me give you a silly example, it runs to the fact, you know, I've got, this, I've got the car I really desired, but it's not quite right colour. <laughs> or I've got whatever it is, and it's not quite right. You know, there's just that little bit about it that could be different, and it would make it slightly better. And if you notice, that's not how life is. It doesn't come in the packages that you want it. It doesn't come complete in the way that you want it. That, in a sense, is dukkha. That is an expectation, in a way, that we bring to our experience that can never be fulfilled. So where does dukkha arise? It doesn't arise from outside. It arises based on internal causes and conditions. In other words, it's we who create dukkha for ourselves. So the Buddha, again, is very realistic. This is not about saying, for example, that if one becomes awakened, physical pain will disappear, that people will not die around you, that things will not change. And I've just highlighted those because those are often very real phenomena that sometimes we even you know, add the appellation of suffering to. We actually give it that cause. We say, you know, somebody dies and that can be suffering. And for most people it very perhaps will be. It will be that suffering. But the Buddha's trying to make clear that what this dukkha is is not the fact of something happening. It's not the fact. Let's just take physical pain. It's not the fact of physical pain. Physical pain does not have to be dukkha. For for most of us it is. Because we bring resistance to it. We bring resentment to it. And avoidance. And all the, the things of, if you like, aversion that we add to this mere physical fact. The fact of physical pain. Likewise, we bring that situation, we bring that mental state to most of our experiences. So, in fact, dukkha is not physical pain, and it's not simply impermanence. It's the mental state, the mental attitude that we're bringing again and again and again and again to the whole field of our experience. 
sense. And in that sense, I don't particularly like it as a translation, but it's a translation that works in a way, that we find most of our experience unsatisfactory. It doesn't provide us with what we want. That physical pain does not have to be suffering, is indicated in quite a number of instances in early Buddhist texts. There's a very classic example, which is I've often quoted, which is found in a collection which is called The Connected Discourses. And it talks about the Buddha walking along a road. He treads on a shard of stone, it penetrates his foot, and the text says it gives him immense pain and implies it gives him absolutely no dukkha at all. In other words, there is no resistance to it. It is literally, if you like, physical pain without embellishment. It talks about, these texts talk about the Buddha at the end of his life, experiencing great pain. He's dying at the age of 80, but in a tremendously calm state of mind. Now, why am I telling you this? All this is important, I think, because it's trying to show to us that there is something we're adding to all of our experience. Particularly, we bring aversion to our experience. Now, that can be our experience of the way the world is, the way people are, you know, the way I am. We have aversion to ourselves. I think this is a very predominant factor in the West, and which is why, um, for the last three years, I've taught retreats like this of a very similar nature, you know, of actually beginning to introduce people to these wonderful practices of befriending yourself and in befriending yourself learning to befriend others out of that befriending condition that condition of affection for self and affection for others growing this wondrous dimension of experience which is there within us already but is just not exhibited very often of compassion. And out of that compassion, appreciative joy at the being surround us. Yeah. And that doesn't just mean human beings, that means what is around us. There's joyfulness that can arise. And then finally, out of all of this can grow equanimity, which really is the goal of this path, this equanimous state of mind, the mind that is content and happy and stable no matter what is. This is not an inactive mind. Let's make this very, very clear. This is not a mind just bent on passivity. The state of equanimity is not passivity, and let's not confuse it with being that. The state of equanimity is a balanced way of doing, a balanced way of engaging, with beings. So these are antidotes, these are ways of overcoming common aspects of all of our experience. I say common because they're not identical. There are common aspects to our experience in the sense that we all experience, for example, aversion, an irritation, rage, anger, all of these negative emotions which are so obvious. You know, from the kind of headline-hitting stuff like the, you know, the knife crimes and all this that's going on at the moment, to the petty resentments and competitions and irritations 
that occur within business and family, and you know, it's there, it's writ large in our societies. And I don't think our societies in that sense have really changed that much. Human society, the fact that the Buddha is talking about this two and a half thousand years ago, um, haven't changed that much in terms of basic human psychology, you know, the basics of what is actually going on for us. And so aspects of practice which we're trying to develop here over this week and explore, such as metta, are the absolute antidotes to the prevalence of anger and aggression and aversion and irritation and all of the things which are so, as I say, readily apparent in our societies. We do not have to look too far to see people getting angry. And I would say, look at ourselves a lot of the time. Because that's where it starts. Beginning to look at ourselves, beginning to look at the wellsprings of our own angers and irritations, our own aversions that we bring to the world, our simple dislikes, if all of those words don't really grab you. Because once we have that, once we are in states of aversion and irritation, there is, in a sense, the breakage of any real relationship. There is a breaking of being able to see the other in any real sense. There is something which I'll explore with you during the week, but I'll just throw out at the moment. Even when others are angry at you, there's often very little that's personal in it. It's something that's in sense you are the object that happens to be standing in front of them at that moment in time. And if you begin to examine this in your own continuum, we'll often see that that's the case. It usually explosion out of irritation and frustration and lots and lots of other factors coming together and that there's very little that's personal in it whatsoever. And that sounds very strange, doesn't it? Because we think you know, anger is an extremely personal feeling. You know, it couldn't be more intimate and more personal when you're suffused in anger. You know, but there's nothing there really which is personal about it. It's the concatenation, it's the coming together of a lot of forces that happen to express themselves in that way. Now this movement that we're trying to affect, the movement from the things I've spoken about so far, the, the externalization, the looking for something outside of ourselves, for permanent satisfaction, happiness, and all the things I've mentioned so far, to the movement of beginning to look within ourselves for the solution to the problems. So the Buddha's message really is the solutions do not occur from outside. The world will always do, and I'm afraid to say this is almost a truism, the world will always do what the world is always doing. Um, In the great play of events of the world, you and I probably are going to have very, very little impact on them. That's not to say we're completely powerless. There are some things that we can have effects on. But most of the great scenarios, the disasters and the famines and the wars and these kinds of events, very little of them do we have any effect upon whatsoever. So the world is always going to be doing what it's doing. 
Yet we can rail and we can get angry and we can get upset um, and it can really make our lives very miserable in our powerlessness. But the one thing that we can do something about, that we can really do something about, we neglect often to do anything about whatsoever. And that is ourselves. The one person you're the most intimate with is you. And it seems very strange that we often look to others to tell us about ourselves. So in many ways this path, in fact the French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan once said, he thought psychoanalysis was a very strange business, that people came to him to see him, to tell them about themselves. <laughs> you know, he was expected to know more about them than they knew about themselves. And really what he, all he was trying to do, he said, was help them to understand who they were by themselves. And in a way, the same can be said of a lot of the Buddhist path. There is no external authority. The Buddha is not an external authority. He's not a godlike figure that in a sense is telling you how it is. He's giving you the tools of exploration in order to be able to explore yourselves. And some of these are a bit like handing you a map. Giving you a map and saying, this is a map of the terrain. Now, if we're sensible, most of us don't go out and just believe in a map. You know, I become a believer in the ordnance survey. <laughs> we don't do that. Yet, funnily enough, the moment we get a text that happens to call itself a spiritual or a holy text, we become believers. We're very strange creatures in this way. Yeah. Well, it's certainly not the case in Buddhist texts, certainly not the case in the Buddha's teachings. The Buddha's teachings are maps to help us to explore a terrain, and that is all. And just like any map is not identical with the terrain, but it can help us around. It can help us to explore the topography. Well, this is helping, to, helping us to explore the landscapes of our own psyche, you know, to discover the wellsprings of affection, compassion, and all these other dimensions which are within us, these wholesome, positive dimensions of our being, this joy which is often concealed because it's over that valley, and it's just deep down in that valley, and I haven't quite seen it. Occasionally I might get a glimpse of it when I'm standing on a high peak, but I don't quite see it. I don't see the depths of that lake of compassion over there, because I've never really gone up to it and explored it. Certainly not dipped my toe into it. I don't see this great rolling meadow of affection very often. I occasionally go there. I occasionally run through it. But I don't dwell in it for very long. So this is the topography that we're exploring. We're not discovering something which is outside of ourselves. Just like the map, maps are something, a landscape, then this psychological geography, this psychology of the landscape of ourselves, is mapping something which is already there. That these things that I'm speaking about, and we'll explore, as I say, starting from tomorrow properly, are already there. You exhibit them from time to time in your life. As I say, you run occasionally through meta 
in affection. However, it's usually affection for that which is close to you. Friends, family, even our pets and things like that. Um, We occasionally have our toe dipped into the lake of compassion when, for example, we are really touched by something. When somebody perhaps is visibly in pain and you might stretch a hand out to help them, to comfort them in this way. You might occasionally be moved to joy at somebody's good fortune or just that, they've, just that they are. <laughs> Has this ever struck you at all? You know, just the wondrousness of those around us. You know, whether you like them or not. You know, almost that's written out of the question. Why, why bother? It doesn't matter whether you like them or not. There is a kind of joyfulness in that just that anybody is or anything is at all. So we glimpse these occasionally. We see them there. They are there within us. None of the things that we speak about, and I'm only concentrating on these very few things this evening, none of these things that we speak about as virtues within this tradition that we can explore are unknown completely to us. We have seen them, we have touched them, we have glimpsed them, but fleetingly often. What we do know often is the other side the resentments, the jealousies, the pettiness, the angers and the irritations that run through our lives. This is often what we see, but it's not the way it has to be. And that's the reason for this diagnosis, of seeing it and really seeing it fully. Because it's only in the full acknowledgement, the full seeing of it, that it can be released. But it's not just the seeing of the negative side, it's the developing of this other aspect, this aspect which is there, almost latent within our psyches. And there's a very famous phrase, probably one of the most famous phrases out of the Dhammapada, which is this really overly translated text, which is, you know, what is the teaching of the Buddhas? The teaching of all the Buddhas is to cease to do what is unwholesome and to learn to do what is wholesome and to purify the mind. Sounds very simple, doesn't it? I always think that sounds a wonderfully simple statement which hides this massive difficulty underneath it, um, which is the difficulty of actually making that movement from the one to the other. But notice the way it's saying it's not simply a matter of identifying and giving up what is unwholesome, It's learning to develop what is wholesome in our lives. To really begin to see those aspects within us. And what we are doing in the development of metta, and I'll speak a lot more about this tomorrow obviously, in developing metta and we're developing compassion, initially is engaging in an act of constructive imagination. By an act of the constructive imagination, using our creative faculties, we are attempting to shift and identify within ourselves and make this movement into these very states of mind. Trying to identify them within ourselves. 
trying to see them. And we often use these phrases, which I'll give you tomorrow, to help us identify them. But it's the relationship we have with them, not the repetition, that is important. You can repeat phrases over and over and over and over again to yourself, and it will have no effect whatsoever. But if you come into the right relationship with them, then they become to have an effect, because it's constructive engagement with them that becomes important. So, let's try and finish this, tie some loose ends together for this evening, so we can pick them up again tomorrow. The solution of the problems is in our hands. The Buddha is saying to you, and I think it's a very simple statement, you've got a problem. And I often think, well, most meditation centers and Buddhist centers wouldn't be populated unless people actually recognize to some degree, no matter how falteringly, that they've got a problem in life. And that might just be a problem of simple dissatisfaction or just a wanting of a degree of contentment they haven't got. And in that, they're recognizing a dissatisfaction. That is all. The solution to that dissatisfaction, whatever it is for you, and only you can identify it for yourself. Um, The recognition of the mythologies that we live under, such as that there is a sweet chili out there, something it's going to give you satisfaction. The solution and the overcoming of the mythologies and the movement towards these more wholesome ways of being, as I said, lays in your hands. It lies in nobody else's hands. It doesn't lie in the texts hands, if texts have hands, it seems a strange mix of metaphors, but never mind. Um, It doesn't lie in the text, it doesn't lie in Buddhas and Bodhisattvas in many ways, but particularly in the early tradition of Buddhas, it doesn't lie in their hands, it lies in your hands. And so authority is firmly given back to you. And so this is not about belief, it's about investigation. It's about movement from empirical understanding from understanding something and then moving forward into it, to the next investigation. Only through having, in a sense, understood something already, understood it and seen it for yourself, to make the move forward into other areas. Now, as we go through the week, I want to explore quite a lot of dimensions around what I've said tonight. This is just a basis, a foundation for things I want to explore with you, you know, and hopefully you will generate some questions as well for the groups and Jenny and for the questions in the evening too. Okay, I'm going to cease there. Um, basically just leave it open, see if there's any questions. Um, first of all, might be practical questions, might be questions to do with what I've spoken about. I don't even have to be questions actually, they can be responses to what's being said or even you know, just observations if you want. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm just 
Well, of course, of course, it means that. Um, <clears throat> I'm not just kind of trying to agree with you here um, to make you feel better. It does actually mean all those things. I mean, that's why I said equanimity is not passivity. Equanimity here is a real engagement with things. Um, I've often spoken in this room over the years where I've been teaching here that, that, that people get very much the wrong idea about a lot of this stuff. For example, I mean, it seems to be, you know, I don't know if you've come across it, but Buddhism, for example, talks a lot about you know, decreasing one's attachments to things. So we consequently almost automatically fall into the idea that we have to have this kind of cool detachment. And that's actually wrong. You know, I often think about that in terms of the metaphor as kind of sitting on the edge of life, looking in. You know, not really being engaged as being the detachment. And it's almost oxymoronic here. But really, in a sense, what the opposite of attachment is in Buddhist terms is correct engagement. You know, learning to engage with the right mindedness, you know, with the right mind. And so actually, there is a lot of intensity there. Uh, there certainly isn't a lack of emotion in this. It's just that the emotion is a different emotion. Yeah, the emotions are the ones, for example, that I've mentioned this evening, the title of the, of the week. They are things like the emotions of affection, the emotion of joy. and that. These are very powerful, intense emotions. And they're very engaged emotions. Now, if you think about this, if we think about the negative emotions that people are actually very attached to, really, really attached to, um, such as anger. Actually, I've never, I always think it's quite funny, I've never got more angry responses teaching in this Dharma hall here than when I've told people that the Buddha's idea about anger is that it's never justified. Because <laughs> yeah, people are really deeply attached to anger. Um, it's a, it's, in a sense, it's consolatory in many instances seeing things and saying, well, I can be angry about that, and all this righteous indignation about it. So there's a deep attachment to many of these, many of these negative things. Um, but what the Buddha is really indicating and the path is indicating is the gradual releasement of those and the supplanting by wholesome, positive emotions in your life. Now, the difference between the wholesome emotions, those engaged, really um, deeply, deeply engaged emotions with others is that they are relational. They bring us into relation with others. Whereas actually, most of the negative emotions, such as anger and irritation, is the fracturing of relations with others. They almost veil us from who is before us. If we're talking about our relation with humans, for example. When I'm angry at somebody, I don't really see them. I don't see their hurt. I don't see their pain. I often don't even see their expressions. You know, in a physical sense. So I'm deeply disengaged because really where I am is at the place of my anger. That's where I am. I'm not actually out in the world. I'm deeply, deeply attached and engaged with self in that moment in time. So I'm not engaged with you in that. And I can explore this as we go through the week a little bit more, if you like, because... These terms, particularly the ones that I've concentrated on you know, um, as exploring this week, are relational. 
They really bring us into connectedness with others. Whereas there is the fracture, you know, there is the, the cutting of connection, the fracturing of any connection with others in those extremely negative and powerful emotions as well. So when I say equanimity, and I do think, unfortunately, a lot of these words get lost in English translations, um, a lot of the connotations behind them. It isn't a blandness at all. It's a deep connectedness, but it's not a valuing of one thing over another. It's a correct response to each and everything that arises. In a way, yes. Yes. I mean, the one thing that's sometimes valuable about reading the original text, even in English translations, is that it gives you a sense of people walking and talking <laughs> and going around. And the one thing you don't get, the idea, is this, you know, this, of, of the Buddha floating around on a cloud in a rather bland way. <laughs> you know, he's actually deeply, deeply engaged with the questions and the responses of people. Um, to what he's having to say and, and, uh, and trying to get them to see things. And it's, it's sometimes deeply compassionate and um, you know, deeply responsive to their needs. Yeah. So it's not a cut-offness at all. Um, I don't know if I can totally reassure you because unfortunately the English language makes a kind of blandness about a lot of these things. It's like when I said the word dukkha this evening, actually when, I, when we translate it as a word suffering, it actually covers up all the other dimensions which are actually probably far more prevalently there for us than suffering. Yeah. And that's unfortunately just the way the English language is. It covers up a lot of what you know, those connotations are in the original, original forms. So I don't know if that reassures you, but it's a response anyway. It's in a sense, to answer your question or respond to your question, it's a little of both. That in a sense they are there, as I've indicated. I mean, you do these acts. There are these acts. Sometimes you are equanimous. Mostly you don't get there, but most of the other things are certainly present. There is, there is meta. There is a degree of kindness. There is a degree of affection. It's just spread in a very small range, really. Um, there is a degree of compassion and so on and so forth. So they're there, they're definitely present in the mind. The Buddha is not saying that we are, in a sense, trying to import something from outside and develop it. So in other words, it really is meaning cultivating. It really is meaning allowing to grow by nurturing and identifying that which is there. But in order for it to grow fully, we have to, you know, this 
stick with the agricultural metaphor here or the horticultural metaphor. We have to keep the weeds out. You know, and that's the uncovering because no matter how beautiful flower is, it could be covered with all this kind of all these weeds that we don't want to be there, um, which actually smother it and cover it and actually can kill it as well, or certainly drive it back deep into the soil, so it just remains a seed. So what we are doing is we are actually nurturing it, cultivating, but at the same time removing that which obfuscates it, that which covers it over. Um, now, those are the things which, as I was saying earlier on, in a sense, are the ones that we know and actually we're quite attached to. And I know it sounds very strange for many people. Despite the fact that a lot of these negative states of mind cause us so much pain, we're deeply attached to them. We don't want to let them go. Um, and actually, the movement towards, even from the previous question, towards some of these other things can seem bland, you know, um, lacking energy, lacking the vitality. Emotions are explosive in terms of the negative ones. We know those. You know, we talk about kind of the explosion of anger and things like that. And some people are really hooked on that. They're really hooked on that aspect of life. And so then they're frightened of letting go of that as well because it might go into a kind of bland, neutral, rather grey state with nothing happening. That's the very opposite of the case. Um, but coming back to your original question, it's, it's, it's really nurturing it at the same time taking the weeds out, which are the, the negative emotions. I kind of heard myself saying that and saying taking them out. It's really more creating the causes and conditions for those to no longer flourish, actually, is how I'd put it in a better way. That the weeds no longer flourish but the wholesome, positive dimensions of our experience start to grow and flourish. So, yes, we will be returning to this during the week. That's okay, it's very, yeah. Well, sometimes investigation, the Buddha was never shy of actually using what faculties we have, and our investigative quality is one of them. And as you probably heard me say, you know, our constructive imagination is also another. The Buddha basically utilized any tool which was there to help us on our way. It doesn't mean it's always an end, but it can be a means to attaining it. So the investigation itself can be a means to enable us to let go. It was very. It was. It was interesting. I was with the Dalai Lama about a few weeks ago when he was here, but he was in Oxford, and we were talking to him about his meditation, what he actually did, and something he did was very investigative. He said he constantly reminded him every day about the, if you like, the negative aspects of anger, the negative aspects of um, resentment and jealousy. And looking at the wholesome aspects of kindness and compassion. And then he said he did that every day. Just you know, basically investigating those qualities each way. To constantly remind himself. And actually sometimes that's what we have to do. The investigation actually is sometimes a constant reminder of where we are. It doesn't mean it's always an end, but it's certainly very, very useful in generating you know, um, a positive way of being in the world. 
Now, again, I don't know whether that answers your question, but it's kind of a response to it. Mm-hmm. We were encouraging us to, to look where the thought is coming from. And to me, it's another way of thinking mm-hmm. some further instead of letting go of the thought. No, I wasn't encouraging you to investigate the thought. What I was encouraging you to do was just to see what the thought was, just to identify it, not to trace it back, not to take it any further, but just to identify it. That is all. It's when something arises that we normally, in terms of our thought processes, identify it in terms of something we want to pursue or something we want to reject. That's our two almost automatic responses to thought processes. We want to get rid of a thought or we want to pursue it if it's a pleasant thought. This is much more of looking at the thought non-judgmentally, acknowledging it's there, but not wishing to reject it and not wishing to take it any further. Now, in a way, this word that's often used, letting go, or this little phrase that's used, letting go, I don't think actually in many ways we can let go. What we do is we create, again, causes and conditions for it to let you go. And that might sound very strange. Um, because volitionally, when I say to myself, it's a bit like saying to, the, you know, to somebody who's tense, relax. What does it do to them? They go, <laughs> like this. You know, and no matter how much they tell themselves or you tell them to relax, they won't get relaxed. And it's a bit like thought. No matter how, much time, how many times I tell myself to let go, you won't let go. Now, all you can do, in a sense, is acknowledge. And if you really fully acknowledge something... In other words, it's seen completely, it will let you go. Because there's no other, there's no, in a sense, there's no more root to it which hasn't been seen. And so it's this full acknowledgement which I'm really trying to encourage, this non-judgmental acknowledgement. And this is what I call just simple awareness, just simply being aware. That's all. It's nothing else. Uh, And that's really what I'm trying to, to encourage you to do. In certainly today, that's what we've been doing. Yeah. The same thing will arise in the meditations that we do, the cultivations that we're going to do for the rest of the week. Thoughts will come up. They will take you away from what we're doing. But instead of running away from it immediately back, and this is really part of a sense, and this is slightly wider than the question, but I think it's important for everybody to hear it, what we're trying to do is not just run away back to whatever the object is that we're dwelling on today. It's been the breath. Tomorrow we're going to start with various phrases that we use to you know, help us to come into a relationship with meta, this constructive imagination that I spoke about. But thoughts are still going to arise. You know? They come generally sooner rather than later. So what are you going to do? Now, the automatic tendency, I think, when we are unkind to ourselves, is to pull ourselves immediately back, either to the breath or to whatever the object we're using or the process we're using to cultivate is. Now, that's very unkind. It's really unkind. It's, it's something we're making life extremely hard for ourselves in doing that. We do that, I think, through a 
again a mythology, which is a mythology that um, sudden you know, somehow we can get perfection really quickly if we keep on doing this, we keep pulling ourselves back again and again and again. And it's not really like that. We develop it through kindness. You know, so the process itself is not unkind. Meditation is not an unkind process. I mean, I joked with you this morning and said that one of the Sri Lankan meditation teachers I used to know very, very well used to say when Western people get meditation, they make their lives even miser- more miserable, is what he saw. He saw that meditation itself became yet another burden that we had laid on ourselves that we have to try and do perfectly. And if you like, this is just allow yourself to relax into imperfection for once in your life. That this is not something we're going to immediately get and perfect straight away. Um, There's a very great virtue in Buddhism um, that often people forget, and it's called patience here. So it's just in the patience of staying with that process of the movement. Let's just take today's meditations that we've been engaging in, the process of moving between looking at the breath, holding it for as long as possible, well, not really holding it, because I was trying to indicate to you to, in a sense, settle your awareness on that movement, to that drifting away, an acknowledgement of thought, not grasping it, not holding on to it, but equally not repressing it. Um, I said something again, it might have passed you by, but I said today that don't repress things. It's no point in repressing because you feed it. It's like giving it nutriment. It actually becomes a lot bigger and a lot healthier and a lot stronger. You know, it becomes weaker the more you acknowledge it. You know, whatever it is, whatever it is you want to run away from. So acknowledge it. Befriend it. And the phrase I used yesterday and a bit today as well. In that befriending process, you're also befriending yourself. Because at this moment... You know, this is what's going on for you. It's this mixture of negative and positive, negative and positive, arising and passing away. Acknowledge it. That's all you have to do. In a way, you don't even have to let it go because it will let you go, ultimately. Yeah. And so, in the very process itself, what I'm trying to say, there has to be meta. Yeah. Without it, it becomes very harsh and it can become very brutal. Yes, and I see, I've seen over the years a lot of people suffering, and I do mean that in a strong sense of the word, suffering as a result of brutalizing themselves in meditation. Yeah. Now, this is not about being lazy, because effort is required, but it is about having this much more balanced attitude towards yourself, learning to respect yourself. Come into a true relationship with yourself. And that means warts and all. (laughs) Everything that's there. And acknowledge it. Any movement that's going to come is going to come from that full acknowledgement. That's the only place it can come from. It can't come from, in a sense, trying to reinvent yourself. And in a way, the brutalization process of pulling yourself back and trying desperately to hold to whatever the object of meditation is, is a forced trying to reinvent yourself without fully acknowledging who and what you are at this moment in time. Just one more question there.
It's the beginning stages of it. That's that's certainly the case. Yes, and, it's, and the word I really use is non-judgmental acknowledgement. So we're not saying it's good or bad, but automatically almost things strike us with a feeling tone as being pleasant or unpleasant. And it doesn't have to go beyond that as being pleasant or unpleasant. Once we do that, um, as you say, we start to move into a much more equanimous state. It doesn't mean you are equanimous, but we start to make our movements towards it. But... Bearing in mind the first question, this is still engagement. You're still engaged with what is going on because you're watching the process. And so it's not an equanimity, which is a false equanimity, which is a blanket you're placing on everything, but it's an ability to watch and see and hold in, in this non-judgmental fashion. 